Oh my gosh. We all remember that scene from the Hitchcock film Psycho. Boy, good to hear it again, but it brings back those memories. Welcome to the Not Old Better Show. I'm Paul Vogelzang. It is so great to be with you. We have a really neat show today. Very fun and exciting with our special guest today, Rachel Franklin, Doctor of Musical Arts. And we're discussing film and music. What a great subject part of our Smithsonian Associates series. The great film director Norman Jewison said, the marriage of the moving image and music is perhaps the most powerful visual communication we have. Wow. Film music can inspire and romance us. It can make emotional statements that a script simply can't, subvert a plot with a completely different subtext, and inject irony, fear, or humor when there is apparently none on screen. Music can salvage a bad movie and make a good movie a great one. Great film scores by composers such as Bernard Herrmann, Max Steiner, Ennio Morricone, and John Williams have engraved iconic scenes into our collective memory with their extraordinary music, even if the rest of the movie might have faded. We are, of course, listening to Bernard Herrmann's Alfred Hitchcock psycho film soundtrack with the knife scene music and music from the finale and music from the prelude. All great stuff. So join us today with popular speaker, concert pianist Rachel Franklin in our conversation that explores the stories behind some of the greatest film music ever composed. We'll be discussing the purpose of a fine score and how it both supports and transforms the film. Rachel Franklin will play selections from each of the films we discuss. So fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a fabulous ride. Please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better Show on KSCW, jazz and classical music pianist, composer, Rachel Franklin. Rachel Franklin, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. I'm really delighted to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Of course. Well, thank you for joining us today. I just think this is just a wonderful subject. I'm just excited to get into it. We're going to talk about magnificent movie music with you. And I wonder if we could just start, you know, right at the start here, maybe tell us briefly about your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation and in particular how you're going to be using Zoom to engage the audience. We're all on Zoom these days. We are, aren't we? No escape from Zoom. Um, So originally I was going to do all my lectures for the Smithsonian Live and then along came that little thing, the pandemic. Um, And I hadn't worked with Zoom before, but I realized that in fact it was really perfectly easy for me to transition. I just had to get used to there not being a live audience. Um, The way I do it is um, I'm a classical and jazz concert pianist and I sit at my piano in my studio and I talk about all manner of subjects that are interesting to me because, you know, Paul, I live down a whole bunch of rabbit holes um, and I do love my my assortment of rabbit holes and and moving music is one of my biggest rabbit holes. (laughs) I could stay down there for days. Um, And so I sit at the piano, I talk to my audience uh, who can see me, even if I can't see them, and I put up slides and I put up clips on my video Zoom so people see what I'm talking about. I'll turn to the piano and demonstrate, you know, so I'll sometimes show slides of music. I I, I use it for all it's worth uh, to give a full account of of my subject and people seem to really enjoy it. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Well, and in fact, you're sitting before your piano today, and so maybe give us a little flourish there of of, uh, of a little little music. Okay, I will just turn around to my mm-hmm. instrument. <laughs> Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. One of my faves. <laughs> One of my faves, absolutely too. So, so when we're talking about film scores, you know, just as that piece, just you know, can just it just moves me as I'm listening to it. I, I'm just smiling. I have to tell you, how does a how does a really great film score get under our skin? What what does it do? Well, it activates parts we're not aware of. <laughs> um, that beautiful song, of course, from the movie Casablanca has what I like to call a really high goosebump factor. Um, There are, of course, you know, thousands of other film schools that use different techniques um, with scary modernist scores like Psycho, you know, where the violins become an instrument of murder. That's not um, romantic goosebumps, that's fear. Um, And I think a lot of the time, it gets under our skin either because it, it it gets into our limbic system and it bypasses the movie altogether and it kicks off responses to sounds or themes that might be familiar, um, you know, very deep-seated expectations of what music does to us, which, of course, implant themselves in our brains, sometimes without us ever even understanding they're there. So we can hear sounds and be romanced by them, and we can hear sounds and be frightened by them, and we may not always know why. But it's a very, very powerful medium, and it can make or break a film. As you were talking, I was just hearing in my mind the psycho music, and and the Casablanca music is so beautiful. Do you have a favorite film of of music and film that, that have just collaborated together, that have just worked this magic on you? Yeah, it's, it's hard, isn't it? Many, because, yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, there's so many. I, mm-hmm. I, I, I have thought about this because people have asked me, and there isn't one film. There are many films, but there are films where I simply marvel at the way that the music and the film work come together in the acting. Um, one of the ones I truly love is To Kill a Mockingbird with the, the score by the great Elmer Bernstein. And the sensitivity of his melodies and the delicacy of his scoring is such that the the actions of the children on film are beautifully reflected and you grow to love them and appreciate their valor and their tenderness as much through the music as through their own actions but mm-hmm. they they blend they just blend so then i guess the next question is then really how does film music give this kind of this sense of inspiration and, and, and romance us really with the visual and the emotional quality that that the script just can't convey because I'm thinking of a kill a, to kill a mockingbird and and the script is is almost subtle at times very powerful though and that the music just adds to that and so maybe give us a little bit more in depth about how it how it works together to really bring that about 
if we're going to talk about To Kill a Mockingbird, I can turn to the piano for a moment mm-hmm. and I can just mm-hmm. show you uh, the delicacy of the score. He, he, he brings it in right at the beginning um, under the titles. And you hear that melody right in the opening all by itself and it's sort of picked out and it's very delicate and you it, it sets your scene in such a way you know by the sweetness and the innocence and the way that the melody rises and falls that this is a film about innocence in mm-hmm, a way mm-hmm. um and then when you get the second mm-hmm. theme which is very connected you get the same rise and fall in the melody and it's harmonized in a very sweet way just a very calm and tranquil way so it's got a rocking feeling to it hasn't it it's like a lullaby so it is it does have a sense of wonder. It's very very sweetly scored with harp and very delicate strings. It has a sense of space. Um how we respond and what we would think about it in different circumstances that's up to each individual listener really. So one of the magical things is to see this film and to experience the music and by the way you never notice the music once you're deep in the film. It's doing its work completely behind the scenes. But once you have seen the film, when you hear that music with or without the film, those feelings that you got with the film will come back. And um, you don't really need to see Scout and Jem um, to, to feel what you feel when you see the film. The music is already set the scene for you. So Rachel Franklin, tell us a little bit about how you started doing all of this, because it's an interesting story with a classical background to it. Yeah, it's um, it's something which I fell in love with. I mentioned rabbit holes. I fell in love with it around 2014. I, I, as a, I'm a classical and jazz concert pianist, but particularly in the classical realms, I always had a real passion for talking to the audience. I, I, I felt it was extremely important that the audience knew why they had bothered to buy a ticket. Um, it really matters to me. And, and um, once I came to America, I started to get into a lot of pre-concert talks. People would ask me to speak about music that I performed a lot. Um, and, you know, that also led to more jazz-oriented things as well. Um, and I did years of talks about classical music until finally uh, some members of my audience with a particular orchestra said, why don't you talk about film music? And I said, film music? I talk about Brahms and Mala, you know. Um, but I took it home with me, you know. Um, and I, I discovered that this was just, this was candy. You know, this was like a magic universe because like Almost everyone else out there, I would watch films that I loved and I hadn't noticed the score. And once I started to listen and, and, and really analyze and think about how I was responding to the score, I realized it was just a whole area around the back of my brain that I had never noticed. 
And um, so I went from having no books about film music on my shelf to having 20 plus books about film music on my shelf. And, and there's more books, you know, I keep adding to it. And I think as a musician, I've always listened to music in a very intense way. Um, so much so, particularly as I talk about it so much uh, for, as a profession that, frankly, when people say, well, what do you like to listen to when you're out of doors? I like to listen to nothing. I like to listen to birds, you know. Um, but I came across film music and it said to me that this was an entire genre that somehow I had noticed subconsciously on a huge scale, but I hadn't noticed it intellectually. How come? And that was what really took me down that particular rabbit hole. And I discovered also that once I started to talk about this to audiences, they also found it a revelation. They went back to their their favorite films and discovered that a lot of their experiences were deeply psychologically tied to the music behind the film. And so it was sort of candy for everybody. And that's why I stuck with it. And it just, it just keeps giving because uh, the more you look at film music, the more you discover what's going on inside your head that you didn't know before. We are with Rachel Franklin, Doctor of Musical Arts. Rachel Franklin is presenting at the Smithsonian Associates a four-session weekend series titled Magnificent Movie Music. And Rachel Franklin, it, it is really so great to talk to you because we've been talking a little bit about Psycho and uh, To Kill a Mockingbird and uh, Casablanca, These just these wonderful films. I wonder if, if can music save a bad movie and, and can it can it make a good movie even better? So interesting, isn't it? Um, I'm not going to diss movies <laughs> particularly. <laughs> um, I will venture towards uh, Gone with the Wind, which has aged terribly as it should have done. Um, the subject matter is just horrible. And I just, you know, when I, I, I remember watching Gone with the Wind back in the UK when I was a teen and being downright embarrassed by large chunks of it. But, but the music written by Max Steiner, uh, it's one of the great, great scores. Max Steiner wrote one of the world's great scores for this film. And um, you can take the film out of it um, but you still have such a powerful goosebump factor. I just don't think that music will ever go away. You know, when you listen to something like this. a sweep to it it's got such a rise to it. it it's sort of it's symbolic of attainment and reaching um it would be very nice if you could separate it from the film but it certainly does give the film an extraordinary um polish that i would say if you took the music out and there's so much of it there are just dozens and dozens and dozens of cues if you took it out i don't think the film would have it what about the history of music and film maybe tell us a little bit about that because before there were talkies. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it, it was just music, right? Well, um, the silent movies, of course, were never really silent, uh -huh. um, which is, 
I, I mean, they've never gone away. There's there's a huge movement to put music to silent movies. And of course, the reason is we often don't have the original rinky-tink, you know, improvisations that were were there, uh, you know, uh, silent movie pianists and small bands and groups to keep this movie moving along. You know, they were never silent. There was always music, but we don't have most of that music now. Unless, of course, it was scored for a large orchestra. Um, so, really, once the talkies came along um, in 1927, the um, studios erroneously assumed they would never have to provide any music again. Why would they bother? So they dismantled all their orchestras and they they sent their vast libraries of silent movie scores to landfill. And for a few years, they just basically existed on making musicals where the singers actually were on the screen. Um, we call that diegetic music. It's a fancy term for when you actually have the players and the instruments right there and you're looking at them. And outside of that, there wasn't any other music. And it took them several years to realize they'd made the most terrible mistake. And they would actually have to start composing music that sat in the background but moved the film along, you know, like a, like a train. And it took a lot of, of film directors quite a long time to understand that. Um, and the first composer who really stepped into the void at the, the perfect time was Max Steiner, who uh, eventually composed Gone with the Wind. Um, but before that, he composed the score for King Kong and other films. And um, truthfully, I think if if Max Steiner hadn't written such a a wonderful score for King Kong. I'm not sure we would have believed that a three-inch high plasticine gorilla was quite the horror that the studios would like it to be. So that's how it started. Um, and it started with Max Steiner cobbling together, cobbling is the wrong word, weaving together motifs, dozens and dozens and dozens of them, um, in a kind of Richard Wagner style from classical music, um, like a tapestry, and every character had their own motif. And Really, that was how it started. Um, and now, even now, really, um, motifs tend to be associated with characters or with actions and events. And that's how we lead the audience along. Among the programs you're going to be talking about is uh, coming up here on November 7th is Westerns, A Step is a step. And and when we say step, this is really <laughs> referring to the Russian word, and, and it's spelled S-T-E-P-P-E. So maybe... Tell the audience a little bit about what that word means and how Western music is just different. And when you think about the Red Pony and High Noon and the Good, Bad and the Ugly, oh, my gosh, I just that music mm. just comes right to mind, too. Spaghetti Westerns also come to mind. So, Doc, tell us all yeah. about it. Oh, a step is a step. That was a, um, uttered by the Russian composer who just had such a great composing life once he got to America, Dmitry Tyomkin. And he, uh, Tyomkin, big burly guy, wonderful sense of humor, never lost his fabulous Russian accent. Um, but he was asked, what, you know, you're, you're from Russia. How come you write all this fantastic uh, Western music? Because he wrote so much. And he replied, a step is a step, um, meaning, of course, you know, big, wide, open, empty spaces um, in Odessa <laughs> are the same as big, wide, open, empty spaces in Odessa. <laughs> um, and he really felt geographically that he would be able to sum up 
sounds that might uh, give those visions nobility and space and optimism. And that's how he did it. And and it that's what he meant. Uh, a wide open space is a wide open space. And it just is remarkable how many composers who literally had never flung a leg over a horse uh, were able to write truly great Western scores and how many of them were really city dudes. You know, and, and a lot of the ground was laid by the, the highly New York-oriented composer Aaron Copeland, you know, who wrote, of course, the score for The Red Pony. Um, and he just had this ability, Copeland had this ability to create open spaces in his music. He, he had a unique language for that, it, those images in our heads. Don't ask me exactly how he did it, because nobody quite knows the harmonies the astringency of them and yet the sweetness of them, the way that the the intervals in Copeland's music uh, are very wide, the very wide intervals. And, you know, we, we of course, we, we remember his ballet schools for Appalachian Spring and Billy the Kid. Um, and he took that ability and he, he just really colored uh, some of the films that he scored. And then composers like Dmitry Tjomkin formed a tradition after that that really uh, led to us associating those kinds of vigorous, beautiful, wide space sounds with with Westerns. I've got a, a, a several favorites, actually. When I, when I think about Westerns, I love High Noon, which Dimitri Tjomkin did the whole score for, including the song Do Not Forsake Me. Um, I love The Big Country, William Wyler's film, The Big Country. It has one of the most inspiring, brilliant Western themes when it opens I have ever, ever heard. Um, and it's such a, a strong genre that you can make fun of it, you know, um, in cartoons and things like that. It's just really strong. And then when Spaghetti Westerns came along, the composer, of course, who changed everything was Ennio Morricone. And really the whole thing changed at that point. And culturally, the country was changing too. So that's why I think changing from these wide open, symphonic, noble, noble spaces orally to um, really these strange, disorienting, powerful wall of sound, rock and roll sounds, you know, with twangy guitars and whip cracks and marvelous sound effects. I think the public was ready to move on from this huge, beautiful genre of traditional Western music and embrace something more complex because the world was more complex and it was the 1960s. Um, so that was just a perfect moment for Morricone to introduce very different music for Westerns, more violent, more extreme and much more ambiguous. And I'm hoping you're going to play some of that for us, baby, right now. Oh, my goodness. Well, I can't play any of Morricone. Of course, we can think of... Which, of course, is the coyote, the coyote call at the beginning of the good, bad, and the ugly. Um, I can play you a little bit. It's, it's better, actually. We, hopefully, we can find an excerpt for this. But I can certainly play you the opening, um, the theme from the big country. Of 
with that theme. You feel you're literally being swept across these planes. You, you are being pulled across by this music and this vision. It, it's a wagon absolutely roaring across a plane, a, a step, if you will. Uh, it's just incredibly successful music. Well, we've talked a little bit about Max Steiner. And we've talked about To Kill a Mockingbird and Psycho. The other film that that I know you touch on, which is a favorite of mine, and it, it's been made and remade, is The Planet of the Apes. And I wonder if you talk a little bit about that and the composer and why you've picked that one, because that's one that I probably wouldn't have thrown into the masterpiece category, but but you have. So to talk a little bit about oh, that's that. That's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's mm-hmm. a highly modernistic school, and... Um, for the music buffs out there, they, they call it a 12-tone score, which is a very fancy way of describing a, a, a system of writing really uh, modern music. Um, well, not that modern now, but was at the time. Um, because it's, it's in space, really, and because some scenes are very extreme, because we're dealing with something utterly bizarre and beyond our our imaginations at the time, you know, apes on horseback, leather clad, bearing guns, extremely violent. Um, Now, of course, we've lived with all the sequels, but at the time, very shocking. One has to ask oneself, what kind of music would you write? What kind of music would be appropriate for a sci-fi film that is so strange and so disassociated from anything that we had seen at the time. So writing really complex contemporary music where there's just a lot of repetition of ideas and little cells and things, um, that's highly appropriate. I mean, you can't really sing anything from, um, you know, that film. It's not, it's not a singable film. Um, it's a film that music, it's disturbing. And it's meant to be. Um, And he took a lot of those little tiny cellular ideas. He would have been inspired by Bernard Herrmann and Psycho, which is also a cellular score, meaning tiny little bits of melodic ideas, you know, um, built on top of each other um, and not much in the way of melody there either. So, yeah, it is a masterful score because it, it uses a lot of sound effects, things like metal pudding bowls. Um, He used uh, a shofar. Um, It's extraordinary the things that he used, Um, you know, uh, um, uh, a temple shofar. You have to ask yourself, ask yourself, what what was the conversation like with his local rabbi? Rabbi, I just want to use, can I borrow the shofar for my son? What would you like to borrow? Well, I'm making this film about (laughs) apes on horseback and I just, (laughs) Uh, you know, how did that? How did that one go? Yeah, <laughs> um, very, very effective. I imagine and, there were some the raised. Sound is kind of altered in a strange way, so that yeah. the ram's horn sounds particularly threatening. It's used in the most famous cue in the film, the hunt, uh, where they really are hunting down the the uh, human natives um, who are so helpless. So that that is my view <laughs> of this marvelous film. Another marvelous film that you talk about. And it is, this is our final question, and we'll, we'll just end on this. But John Williams gets an awful lot of attention um, as perhaps a contemporary composer, you know, as, as opposed to uh, Max Steiner and Bernard Herrmann and Jerry Goldsmith, perhaps even. But but 
Star Wars is a favorite of of all age ranges. Absolutely. Talk a little bit about John Williams and his his great music composition. Well, there's so much of John Williams for a start. I actually I just did my first session, and we included um, I included Jaws, um, which is is just a masterful score. How on earth do you build an entire tradition on this? How do you do that? Um, so inspired, the, the concept the concept of, of a, a little cell of music substituting for an entire character. You know, the shark is a character. And because all those animatronic sharks that were made for the film turned out not to work in salt water and were a complete failure, um, Spielberg had no option in the end but to ask his buddy, his favorite composer and his dear friend John Williams, to compose a character, literally. And so a lot of film music substitutes for characters or fills in those characters in a way that we can't necessarily see. Um, so that's Jaws. And with Star Wars, what you're getting is, is again, I refer to Richard Wagner here, who was the, the German composer who created the Ring Cycle and many other operas that... Um, you know, are quite controversial in terms of their plot, but in terms of how they're put together were just our masterpieces. But Richard Wagner used what we call a leitmotif system. Max Steiner brought that leitmotif system to Hollywood, and John Williams uses it absolutely constantly for Star Wars. So you have, of course, you know, Luke's theme. That is Luke's theme, you know. And then you have... Uh, the forces of darkness. You know, um, so many, many themes, and they are built as a webbing, as a, as a tapestry of light motifs, uh, in a very traditional way. And and Williams scores the film so that we're led along by these motifs. We're literally, you, you hear them in the background, you don't even notice them. But they're literally, it, it's like another background of film that we get. Our ears are being led along and our expectations are being led along by all these motifs that John Williams lays out for us. I'm a great fan of John Williams. What on earth would movie music in our modern era have done without John Williams. Rachel Franklin's been our guest and we've just really enjoyed our time together. Rachel Franklin, the purpose of a fine score and how it how it supports and transforms the film is the subject of your Smithsonian Associates presentations along with, with many other things, but your music is wonderful. We're going to listen to more of that as we go out. But Rachel Franklin, thanks for your time and uh, gosh, I just want to encourage all of our audience to check this out. We'll have links up to where you can find out more information about Rachel Franklin and her Smithsonian Associates presentations, but gosh, what a privilege and joy it's been to talk to you today, Rachel Franklin. Thank you so much. I've had a blast and I love playing these beautiful themes for people, so I would recommend uh, watch the rest of my sessions on uh, for the Smithsonian and go and get to know these films and switch your ears on. You will hear and see things you never saw before. My thanks to the Smithsonian Associates for their ongoing support of the show. My thanks to you, my wonderful audience. Please, let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show. Thanks, everybody, and we'll see you next week. Remember, you can find everything on our website, 
natold-better.com. Thanks. Thank you.